Welcome to another Salvation by Grace midweek message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a Sovereign Grace Fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. Remember to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. Now, here's our pastor and teacher, Jim McClarty. You can turn to Job chapter 13. Although you can actually turn to Job chapter 14, because that's where we're starting. So now all three of Job's friends have spoken. All three of Job's friends have accused him. All three of Job's friends have said some version of this is happening to you because you brought it on yourself. You've done something. You're wicked in some way. You have sinned, and you're only receiving what you deserve. In each case, Job continued to argue for his integrity and that he had not sinned and that he had not done anything that would bring this on himself. He continues to argue that God is simply doing what God chooses to do. So now chapter 14 is the beginning of the second round of each of the three of them having their say. But now they're going to kind of up their game. You're going to notice this time around, they're not quite as tolerant as they were the first time around. They thought perhaps by saying positive things to Job about, well, you could have a great life, things would get better if you just repent. This time around, none of the three are going to mention repentance. Now they're just going to say, you're guilty. They're just going to accuse him. They're just going to keep slamming him and telling him, that he had to have done something because look at your condition. This is the condition that happens to evil people. Therefore, you must be an evil person. Just admit that. Job then is going to say, you know, between the three of you, you are really lousy at this. Um, If I were in your state, if I was where you are, I would say comforting things. I would say encouraging things. But you all are just really bad comforters. Now, what's going to happen this second time around as they start arguing and as Eliphaz starts making his argument in chapter 15, he's going to say, what we're telling you now is what the ancients have always known. The fathers all agree with this. So he's going to make an appeal to authority. He's going to say, this is, this is really what everybody thinks, what everybody believes. Which is interesting that Eliphaz would go immediately to that argument. Because that's also a common argument to this very day. Folks will say, well, you know, the majority believes. This is what people across the board always believe. So the question arises... Can the majority be wrong? Well, here in the book of Job, if you just look at the three of them versus Job, they are the majority, and we know from the end of the book, they're wrong. I've said many times through the years that one of the most interesting aspects of the Bible is that wherever you find a majority, they're always wrong. Even Jesus went so far as to say that Broad is the way, and wide is the gate that leads to eternal destruction. Many there be that go in thereat. And 
and narrow is the way straight is the gate that leads to eternal life few there be that find it so majority opinion doesn't matter to God right now in the United States at this very moment we are codifying things societally that the Bible says are sinful are abominations and yet we as a group of human beings have gotten together and voted or our representatives have voted and have decided that things that once were abominable in God's eyes and once were anathema to our country are now okay and on what basis do we think it's okay well the majority the majority says so and because the majority thinks it it must be okay power in numbers and so I hope as we look at this next part of Job and you see this argument coming up look this is what everybody thinks you will recognize that that's not really a good argument. All that really matters is what God thinks. Everything else is the opinion of a fallen human being. And fallen human beings are likely to err in their thinking. Fallen human beings are likely to say whatever it is that's going to benefit them. They're not always going to defend what God says or what God thinks, especially because our corrupt nature wants to find some excuse for doing the things that we want to do or thinking the things that we want to think. And so the most common excuse for humans, even to this moment, is, yeah, but everybody's doing it. Yeah, but everybody thinks it. Yeah, this is the wisdom of men down through the ages. And that just doesn't matter to God who's going to show up later in the book and say, that's wrong, Eliphaz. My, my anger is kindled against you because you didn't say what was right. So remember, as you read Eliphaz's argument, which we're going to do, that you're not swayed by his argument. Okay, now typical of what we've seen all the way along, Job is going to bemoan his state. And then Eliphaz is going to answer, and then Job is going to respond to Eliphaz. Starting at chapter 14, verse 1. Man who is born of woman is short-lived and full of turmoil. Can I get a witness? <laughs> Some people pronounce that short-lived. I think it's short-lived that our lives are very short and full of turmoil during the time that we're here. That's the human condition. Verse 2 says, like a flower, a man comes forth and then he withers. He also flees like a shadow and he does not remain. That's the frailty of human life. That's the fragility of human life. We're here for a little while and then we're gone. Think about the billions of people who have ever lived on planet Earth prior to us. If I said to you, name 10, you might be able to name some famous ones or some past presidents or maybe an inventor, a philosopher you could think of. But the fact of the matter is, most people come here, live their whole life, do their thing, live whatever fullness of life they get, and then they pass, and then life goes on without them. Life continues anyway. And that's what he's saying. Like a flower, a man comes forth, and then he withers and then he flees away like a shadow and does not remain. 
And now speaking to God, he says, thou dost open thine eyes on him and bring him into judgment with yourself. Now, this is an interesting question, a really good theological question. Who can make the clean out of the unclean? And his answer is no one. Now, I don't think he's talking theologically here or setting it up for only God can do this. What he's saying is, you guys have all been telling me that I am in some way sinful. I'm in some way corrupt. And then you have all said to me to clean up my ways. And that if I do better, if I repent, if I clean up my ways, that then God is going to give me health and happiness and life and all of that. Every one of them have made the same basic argument. If you just do better, your life will get better. But if it is true that he is already sinful and corrupt, his question is, who can fix that? Because no amount of human effort can make genuinely holy, genuinely righteous, genuinely clean that that is already corrupted. So he's saying, I would have to stand before God. I'd be brought into judgment with him. And how in the world can I make myself clean enough to stand up to that judgment? You've already condemned me as a sinner. Who can make the clean out of the unclean? No one. And that comports exactly with everything we believe about human depravity and human inability. That's why I do not stand up here and say to you, your sinners now do better and clean yourself up and get yourself righteous and prepare to go meet your maker on the basis of your own self-earned righteousness. Because the simple fact is you can't clean yourself up good enough. You can't do it. That's what makes the theology, the biblical teaching of God's grace so important that God and God alone can make clean the genuinely unclean. God and God alone can declare you to be righteous, though you're not. Job's question at this point, though, is, you've already condemned me as being unclean. Who can make me clean again? No one. Since a man's days are determined, and the number of his months is with thee, with God, and his limits Thou hast set so that he cannot pass. Look at how sovereign he thinks God is. He says that God has determined the number of days and the number of months of a man's life. And God has also set limits on that man that the man can't pass. I don't think he's just talking about geographic limits here. He has actually set up hedges around his people so that we can only go so far so that we can't end up in utter rebellion against him. He sets limits around us. He determines our days. He knows our numbers. He's in charge of our birth. He's in charge of our death. He's an absolute sovereign in Job's mind. Verse 6, turn thy gaze from him that he may rest. What he's saying is, God, turn away from me right now. I know you're sovereign. I know you're in charge. You're in charge of everything, and that's why I'm going through this. I wish you would leave me alone a little bit because this is agony. Turn thy gaze from him that he may rest until he fulfills his days like a hired man, which is a really interesting phrase. He says that human beings live their life before God 
living the exact number of days and even dealing within the limits that God puts on him. And then we fulfill our days here on the planet like a hired man would have to do because he'd been hired to work as a servant. And then he compares it to horticulture. Would that be what trees are? You're agreeing with me? Tom and I are going with horticulture. For there is hope for a tree, says verse 7, when it's cut down, that it will sprout again, and its shoots will not fail. Though its roots grow old in the ground and its stump dies in the dry soil, at the scent of water it will flourish and put forth sprigs like a plant. What he's saying there is exactly what I've experienced myself. I had, a, I had this horrible bush out front of my house for a while. I mean, it was a horror. And one day I said to the guy who takes care of that stuff, I, I asked him if he would just cut down that thing completely. Just get rid of it. Just kill it. Just, and he not only cut it way back to the point of dying, but then he poured a little gas or oil or something on it. I mean, he killed this thing dead. He said, that's it. That thing's not coming back. If you come to my house right now, that thing is flourishing in front of my house. Why? Because the roots were still there. And as long as the roots are there, even if you kill a tree, kill a plant, kill a bush, it still has the ability to come back. So he's saying even trees have hope. But then he compares that to a man, starting at verse 10 and says, but man dies and lays down prostrate, man expires, and then where is he? As water evaporates from the sea and a river becomes parched and dried up, so man lies down and does not rise. Until the heavens be no more, he will not awake nor be aroused from his sleep. Now, Job is not talking at this point about soul sleep, and he's not talking about annihilationism. He's talking about the reality of physical trees and physical bodies. The reality is when your physical body goes down into the grave, it doesn't matter how often we water it, it's not going to spring back to life. When it goes down into the grave, he keeps referring to Sheol, which is the grave. When it goes down into the dirt, then that's it for that body. It lays down and it does not rise again. He will not awake or be aroused out of his sleep. Verse 13, oh, that thou wouldst hide me in Sheol. He's saying, I, I've had enough of this, this life, this pain, the struggle. I wish that I could just die, but I can't seem to just die because you're in charge of my days and my months and the limits you've put on me. And one of those limits is my physical body that you've now done all this to, and yet I can't seem to die. I wish you would just let me hide in Sheol and be done with this, that thou would conceal me until your wrath returns to yourself. I'm living under your wrath. I wish you would just let me die, and then your wrath could go back to you. Verse 14, if a man dies... Will he live again? All the days of my struggle, I will wait until my change comes. In other words, I'm going through this agony, mental agony, emotional agony, the death of my children, the absolute destruction of everything that 
identified me as a rich man here in the Middle East. That's all gone. Everything's wiped out. And now my body is, is just oozing mass of blood and pus. And I'm sitting on an ash heap and carving away at my skin with a piece of broken pottery. And I don't seem to be able to die in the midst of all that. I just wish my change would come when I could lay down this mortal coil and just die. All the days of this struggle, I will wait until my change comes. And then thou wilt call me, and I will answer thee. This is why I said he's not talking about soul sleep here, and he's not talking about annihilationism here, because he's saying once the change comes, then God's going to call him, and he's going to be with God. You will call, and I will answer you. You will call for the work of thy hands. In other words, I am the work of your hands. You made me. You created me. He's already argued that. And you will finally call for the work of your hands, and I will come to you. Verse 16. For now, you do number my steps, and you do not observe my sin. A very, very interesting thing. He says, my transgression is sealed up in a bag, and you do wrap up my iniquity. So if he has sinned, if he has trespassed, if he is iniquitous, he says, that's with God, and God, I know, has wrapped it up and removed it out of the way. So you three who keep saying that this is all happening to me because of my sin, what about the fact that it's God that's removing my sin and putting it in a bag and, and pushing it away from me? What about the fact that when I die, God will call me to himself? And he's in charge of my days, and he's in charge of my months. He even numbers my steps, and then he does not observe my sin. You three observe my sin. You three keep telling me how sinful I am and how I deserve this because of my sinfulness. And yet, my transgression is sealed up in a bag. And thou dost wrap up my iniquity. But... The falling mountain crumbles away, and the rock moves from its place. Water wears away stones. Its torrents wash away the dust of the earth. So you do destroy man's hope. The same way that all those other things are true, that mountains crumble away, rocks move out of place, and the water can wear away a stone, and torrents of water Take away the dust of the earth. The same way that those are all truisms, it's a truism that you destroy a man's hope. Now, understand the word hope in this context. What he's saying is a tree that can be reborn, he said, has hope. But all I can look forward to at this point is misery and pain and staying alive, serving out my days like a hired servant until finally I'm hidden into Sheol. Then you'll call me home. That's what the rest of my life looks like. What kind of hope do I have? Verse 20. Thou dost forever overpower him, and he departs. Thou dost change his appearance, and you send him away. I think at that point he's talking about the fact that people die and that his own flesh has changed in appearance, and that God has just overpowered him. He has no say in what's happening to him. These things happen to him despite the fact that he wouldn't want it. And then he says this about death. Once a person dies, once God is, has overpowered him and he finally departs, 
once he changes his appearance and begins to decay, and then God sends him away. After that, verse 21, he says, if his sons achieve honor, he doesn't know anything about it. Or if they become insignificant, he doesn't perceive it. Why? Because he's dead. He doesn't know what happens after he leaves. And even if his own progeny, his own children achieve great things or achieve nothing, he has no idea about it. But his body pains him and he mourns only for himself. I think that, by the way, is a little jab at his three friends. He says, I'm here mourning for me. What are you three doing? You should be mourning for me over here, but apparently I'm the only one I'm mourning for myself. And then Eliphaz the Temanite responded, just kind of couldn't wait to get his shot at this one. And says, should a wise man answer with windy knowledge? In other words, if you were smart, you wouldn't continue this kind of talk. Because a wise man wouldn't do it. You're going to see this phrase, this words of wind and windy knowledge a lot. Because both of them keep accusing each other of having windy words. It's words that don't mean anything. It's words that blow away like the wind. It's just empty talk. They're both accusing each other of being full of hot air. Should a wise man answer with windy knowledge and fill himself with the east wind? Should he argue with useless talk or with words which are not profitable? By the way, I just want to remind you for just a moment. So God's listening to this whole conversation. Because when God shows up, he says those three didn't say what was right about him like my servant Job has. So as Eliphaz is saying all this, that it's empty words and windy words and not profitable words, is he correct? No. No, he's saying that Job, the only one who's speaking the truth on God, is saying things that are not profitable. So he's completely full of his own opinion, and he's sure he's right. Again, how many of those people have you met, especially on Facebook? Okay, now. <laughs> Indeed, you do go away with reverence, and you hinder meditation before God. In other words, the way you talk, the way you speak, you're not being reverent before God. You're not saying good things about God, and you, you hinder our meditation about God. In other words, we're thinking correctly. We're meditating on the things of God, and we're doing it right, but you're trying to take us away into all these other ideas, all these other thoughts about a completely sovereign God who can do whatever he wants, and that's, that's hindering my meditation on God. So stop that. For your guilt teaches your mouth. And you choose the language of the crafty. Do you hear what he's saying? First off, he's saying, you're guilty. Even though we don't know what your guilt is, you're definitely guilty. And now your guilt is teaching your mouth how to talk. And the words you're saying are empty words because they're the words of a guilty person. And you're trying to choose your words craftily, cunningly, so that you can justify yourself. You choose the language of the crafty. Your own mouth condemns you and not I. And your own lips testify against you. Were you the first man to be born? Or were you brought forth before the hills? 
Do you hear the secret counsel of God and limit wisdom to yourself? In other words, now that you've told us what you think, now that you've told us your opinion, are you so smart that you're the one who's going to instruct us? Well, let me tell you this. What do you know that we do not know? What do you understand that we do not? Both the gray-haired and the aged are among us. Oh, so we're, we're old guys. Now we know that Eliphaz and his two friends are guys that have been around a long time. And he says, we are older than your father. And so we've been around. We know some stuff. We're aged people. Are the consolations of God too small for you? I think at that point he's referring to himself and his friends as the consolation of God. Here we are trying to console you by making you understand your own sinfulness, by making you understand your own guilt, and apparently that's too much for you because you keep withstanding us. Are the consolations of God too small for you? Even the words spoken gently to you? Has Eliphaz spoken gently yet? No. No. But in his mind, in his opinion, these are helpful words. These are comforting words. All I'm trying to do is to console you and to tell you gently that you're really, really guilty and that you need to admit it, and then if you'll admit it, everything will go good again for you. Verse 12. Why does your heart carry you away? In other words, you're arguing from your emotion. And why do your eyes flash? that you should turn your spirit against God and allow such words to go out of your mouth. So he's accusing Job at this point of saying things that are anti-God, against God. And as we know, it's actually Eliphaz who's wrong here. But this is typical again, and I, I don't mean to keep overly contextualizing this, but if you have watched any of the online theological arguments that are typical, where everybody behind their keyboard gets very, very brave, you'll see a lot of this very kind of talk. Mm -hmm. This whole thing of, well, I'm right, and I'm speaking for God, and if you don't agree with me, well, then you're not agreeing with God. And why do you say such silly and wrong things? You turn your spirit against God. It's this attacking of the man. It's the ad hominem attack. Instead of saying, well, here are the merits of your argument, and here are the parts of your argument that need to be clarified. Instead of sticking to the actual topic of whether God is truly, genuinely sovereign enough to do this, instead of sticking to what are the actual results of sin and is Job going through this, instead, Eliphaz is just saying, it's you. You're just a windy talker, and you've turned your spirit against God. And how do you allow such words to come out of your mouth? And then because Job started out by saying, back in verse 14, he said, who can make the clean out of the unclean? Now Eliphaz answers him and says, what is man that he should be pure? Or he who is born of a woman that he should be righteous? I think what he's arguing there is, Job, you keep telling me that you're righteous. You keep telling us you haven't sinned. You keep saying that you didn't do anything that would bring on this kind of misery in your life. But what is a man that he could possibly be pure? You cannot possibly be pure. You're a man. 
you're born of a woman. And he that is born of a woman can't be righteous. So therefore, you must be guilty, is the argument. Behold, God puts no trust in his holy ones. What he's arguing here is God doesn't even trust the angels. And the heavens themselves are not pure in his sight, much less one that is detestable and corrupt, a man who drinks iniquity like water. So if men are so iniquitous and God is so holy that even the stars in the heavens are not pure in his sight, how can you keep arguing for your integrity? There's no way you're righteous. There's no way that you're pure. There's no way that you're good. Why don't you just admit that you're a corrupt sinner and that that's why all this is happening to you? Verse 17, I will tell you, listen to me. And what I have seen, I will also declare what wise men have told and have not concealed from their fathers. Okay, there's the appeal to authority. This is what all people think. Wise men all think this. And their fathers thought this. And so I'm going to declare to you what wise men have always thought. These wise men who have not concealed the truth from their fathers, to whom alone the land was given and no alien passed among them. This is what they conclude, verse 20. The wicked man writhes in pain all his days. And numbered are the years that are stored up for the ruthless. What is he saying? He's saying, Job, it's clear that wicked men writhe in pain. You're writhing in pain. Ergo, wicked man. You must be a wicked man because you're writhing in pain. And we know that only wicked men writhe in pain. So since you're writhing in pain, then numbered are the years that are stored up for the ruthless. So you're ruthless. Again, put flesh and blood on this. How much pain is Job actually in? I'm going to say a whole lot more pain than any of us have ever been in. Mm -hmm. The death of the ten children, the destruction of everything he owns, his own wife turning on him, and then God putting this sickness on him, turning him over and letting his body just be racked with pain. And here is his supposed consoler saying to him you're clearly evil and wicked you're a wicked man you're writhing in pain and you're ruthless does that make anybody feel better try that out someday next time a friend is in the hospital you know go to them and say clearly this is happening because you're ruthless and wicked and see how much actual consolation that brings them or see how long it takes them to push the nurse's button to get you out of there. <laughs> a wicked man rides in pain all his days, and numbered are the years that are stored up for the ruthless. Sounds of terror are in his ears. While at peace the destroyer comes upon him. Look, he's arguing continuously. You must be wicked and ruthless because... Wicked, ruthless men can be at peace, and then the destroyer comes on them. And the destroyer did come on Job, and did destroy his household and his family and his animals, his livestock, his living, his own body. So the very fact that the destroyer got to you is proof that you must be a wicked man. There you go. It's just, it's logically consistent, except that it's utterly, utterly wrong. 
He does not believe that he will return from darkness, and he is destined for the sword. That phrase, he does not believe that he will return from the darkness, is a response, I think, to the fact that Job kept saying that he was going to find peace and rest in Sheol, in the grave. And he's not going to return from the grave, and he looked forward to just dying at this point. And now he said, yeah, well, that's how wicked men think. So if you think that way, that's proof that you're a wicked man. He does not believe that he will return from the darkness. And he is destined for the sword. He wanders about for food saying, where is it? And he knows that a day of darkness is at hand. Distress and anguish terrify him. They overpower him like a king ready for the attack. Because he has stretched out his hand against God and conducts himself arrogantly against the Almighty. So again, these things have all happened to you because you are arrogant and you have stretched out your hand against God. Clearly, you're not on God's side. The fact that these things are happening to you proves your own wickedness. He rushes headlong. God rushes headlong at him with his massive shield. For he has covered his face with his fat and made his thighs heavy with flesh. And he has lived in desolate cities, in houses that no one would inhabit, which are destined to become ruins. By the way, it's exactly what's just happened to Job's house. It's all been destroyed. It's fallen in. His children were killed in a house. But hey, they're in houses that no one inhabits, which are destined to become ruins. And he will not become rich, nor will his wealth endure. See, Job's wealth isn't enduring. His wealth was destroyed. So again, this is just all evidence that Eliphaz keeps heaping on Job to prove to Job that he must be a wicked man. He must be a sinner. And his grain will not bend down to the ground. All that means is that the grain won't have so much fruit on it, so much grain at the head of it that it causes the stalk to bend down to the ground. A really good stock of grain will ultimately bend down. But they're never going to have that. He's never going to have plenty. He will not escape from the darkness. The flame will wither his shoots. And by the breath of his mouth, he will go away. Let him not trust in emptiness, deceiving himself, for emptiness will be his reward. Oh, so now Job is saying, I wish I could just die, and at least in the grave I would get some comfort, and then God would call me and I would answer him. And he's saying, when you die, emptiness is your reward. That's all you can look forward to. And it will be accomplished before his time. You're going to die early. And his palm branch will not be green. And he will drop off his unripe grape like a vine. And will cast off his flower like the olive tree. For the company of the godless is barren. And the fire consumes the tents of the corrupt. They conceive mischief and they bring forth iniquity. And their mind prepares deception. Okay, so where did he start out? He started out by saying to Job, you're clearly using words in a way that you are using guile. You're being crafty with the words you're choosing to use. And now he's saying evil men would act like that. Evil men would do exactly what you're doing. They conceive mischief. They bring forth iniquity. And their mind prepares deception. And here you are using all this deceptive language. This is all just proof 
that your evil and what's happening to you is what you deserve. And Job says, man, you stink at this. You are really not good at this, like at all. Chapter 16, then Job answered, I have heard many such things. Sorry comforters are you all. You're just not good at this. Is there no limit to your windy words? Or what plagues you that you answer? That's a great question. He says, what is going on in your head? What obsession is inside you that you feel the necessity to keep answering back at me every time I tell you the truth? I tell you I didn't do anything that would bring this about. I tell you that God, who is sovereign, can do whatever he wants, and he's doing this to me. And yet there's something inside you, this this obsession of yours, where you keep feeling like you need to answer me. You keep saying contrary things to me. Why? What is it? And what plagues you that you keep answering like this? I, too, could speak like you if I were in your place. I could compose words against you and shake my head at you. And then I think verse 5 needs an or because it's a contrast. He says, or I could strengthen you with my mouth and the solace of my lips could lessen your pain. So I could do what you're doing. You're not doing anything special. All you're doing is heaping misery on me and I'm already miserable. So big deal for you. I could do that. Anybody could do that. And I could shake my head at you and I could compose words against you the same way you're doing it. But I could also do something you all seem incapable of doing, which is I could strengthen you with my mouth and I could solace you with my lips. I could lessen your pain with my words. But you all are just sorry comforters. You're just no good at this. Verse 6, if I speak, my pain is not lessened. In other words, why do you think I'm doing this? Why do you think I'm saying these things? Do you think that when I say these things to you, it somehow reduces my pain? No, my pain is with me all the time. I'm telling you this because it's the honest truth. If I speak, my pain is not lessened. And if I hold back, what has left me? No pain has left me. None of my sores have left me. But now he, God, has exhausted me. And thou hast laid waste to all my company, all his animals, all his children, everything he had has been laid waste. And thou hast shriveled me up. That was genuinely, literally true. He was reduced to a mere shell of a man full of sores. And you have shriveled me up, and that has become a witness. And my leanness rises up against me, and it testifies to my face. In other words, Job never gets to escape what he's in. Every time he looks at himself or cuts himself with a piece of pottery, every time he sees the blood and pus on his skin, it's just a constant witness to him that testifies to his face that this is his condition. This is the extent of his loss. And he's saying, what do I gain? What what benefit do I get from telling you the truth? 
No pain leaves me. Nothing leaves me. God's anger has torn me and hunted me down, says verse 9. He has gnashed at me with his teeth. My adversary glares at me. I don't think he's saying God is his adversary there. I think he's saying the adversary that God has used glares at me. Or perhaps he's saying my adversary is my three friends because verse 10 says they have gaped at me with their mouth. In other words, their mouths hang open when they see me. And they have slapped me on the cheek with contempt. And they have massed themselves against me. God hands me over to ruffians and tosses me into the hands of the wicked. I was at ease. But he shattered me, and he has grasped me by my neck and shaken me to pieces. And he has also set me up as his target, and his arrows are surrounding me. In other words, there's no place to escape. I'm God's target. It doesn't matter where I go. He's going to get me. Without mercy, he splits my kidneys open and pours out my gall on the ground This is just an old Middle Eastern expression. He's not talking about kidneys the way we talk about kidneys today. What he's talking about is his bowels, his innards. And that was, in Middle Eastern thinking years ago, that was the center of emotion. Your feelings came up from your gut. These days, we say it's from your heart. But they said it was from the inner man, and it sprung up in you. So when he says that he splits my kidneys... He's saying he causes that inner man to suffer in pain. My emotional agony knows no end. He pours out my gall on the ground. He breaks through me with breach after breach. In other words, even if I tried to defend myself against him, he would just keep breaking through the breach and doing it anyway. He runs at me like a warrior. I have sewed sackcloth over my skin. That's a sign of mourning. He covered himself in sackcloth, which, by the way, given the amount of sores that were on his skin and the amount of running sores that he had, sackcloth, which is hair, which is really, really itchy, could not have been comfortable. But then again, what would be? And so on top of everything else, he's physically enduring He still puts sackcloth over himself so that he is showing his repentance before God, his agony before God, so that he is showing God, I know that no matter where I go, no matter what I do, you have me utterly hedged about and you're going to keep doing to me whatever you're going to keep doing to me. All I can do is sit here in sackcloth. All I can do is sit here in misery. I have sewed sackcloth over my skin And thrust my horn into the dust. What that means is, when animals have horns, where do they have them? On their heads. heads. Yeah, there are no animals that have horns on their back right leg or something. What that means is, when an animal puts his horn in the dust, he puts his head down. And he's saying, that's what God has done to me. Like an animal that can't lift his head anymore, I have put my horn into the dust. I have lowered my head before God. I'm wearing sackcloth. I'm showing God my misery and my face is in the dust. My face is flushed from weeping and deep darkness is on my eyelids. Although there is no violence in my hands and my prayer is pure. 
And then he cries to the earth to remember him. Even though he has said that men go away into Sheol and then they're forgotten like a shadow. They just disappear. He wants his agony, his situation to be remembered. And he says it by saying, O earth, do not cover my blood. In other words, let the blood of what happened here to me remain. And here we are some four or five thousand years later still talking about it, still using it as an example. So I think it's kind of interesting that the thing he pleaded for actually happened. O earth, do not cover my blood and let there be no resting place for my cry. Even now, behold, and man, this this is fascinating. Um, I'm trying to emphasize, and I hope I'm doing it somewhat. I'm trying to emphasize the agony of his position. Not only his physical position, but his mental and emotional position, and his friends who are telling him how evil and corrupt he is, He's got no place to go for help. He's got no place to go where there's someone advocating for him. His friends aren't doing it. His wife hasn't done it. His children are all dead. He's the only one who can say anything on his own behalf, and even his friends then don't hear it, won't listen to it, and tell him how wrong he is for saying it. So where is he going to find, if he is a just man, if he is a righteous man, who is he going to find who will actually advocate for him? Who can he find that will actually take up his cause and say, I know what you're going through, and I know why it's happening, and I know that God is doing this to you because God is sovereign. I know that you're saying the right things. Who's saying that so far in this book? Nobody. He's the only one defending himself, so he ends up saying, verse 19, even now, behold, my witness is in heaven, and my advocate is on high. In other words, God knows the truth. God knows what's really going on here. And Job is saying, That's where my witness needs to be. That's where my advocate needs to be. The one who's going to plead my cause and defend me ultimately is the one who's sitting on high. So so let's apply that for just a quick moment. Because I think that tells us the same thing that we see over and over in the New Testament. And I have said it so many times through the years. We need to get rid of our sense of independence and our sense of self-made man, and our sense of self-worth or self-righteousness, we have to recognize that if we're going to be eternally okay, if we're going to be declared righteous by God, if the imputed righteousness from Christ is ever going to be put on our account, then what that makes us is actually utterly dependent. It makes us completely dependent on him. And there's really nobody here on the planet that can do anything more than console you in your pain. But there's nobody in this room that can take a sickness off you. Mm -hmm. If you've got a sickness, it doesn't matter how bad they feel about it. They can't change it. They can't fix it. If you've sinned, if you've rebelled, if you've rebelled against God, there's really nobody on this planet that can fix that. There's no other human who can make it right between you and God. It's it's going to be an advocate. 
who's in the heavens, who's actually there to plead your cause. And so John picks up that language in the New Testament and says that when we sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And so Job has come to this reality through the things that he has suffered, through the pain that he has gone through, through the betrayal of the three men who were supposed to be his friends. He has come to the absolute end of himself and recognized and declared that the only true advocate for him has to be God. It has to be the one that's on high. That's the only place that genuine hope for forgiveness and eternal healing and genuine righteousness can actually exist. You're not going to find it through anybody else or anywhere else. And Job was driven to that. Even now, behold, my witness is in heaven, and my advocate is on high. My friends, the three friends that came to him, they're scoffers. My eye weeps to God. Oh, that a man might plead with God as a man pleads with his neighbor. For when a few years are past, I shall go the way of no return. So Job is now starting to build up this thought that you're going to see continue to develop. This thought of, I wish I could plead my case with God. I've got no one else I can go to about this but God. But I wish I could argue with God the way I can argue with my neighbor. I wish I could plead my cause directly to God. And of course, you know, the end of the book, God shows up. And you know what he doesn't do? What Job doesn't do is end up pleading his cause. What he ends up doing is putting his face back in the dust and saying, I abhor myself. So again, the lesson that I want you to walk away with tonight from this part of Job is it doesn't matter what human beings say. It doesn't matter what human beings think because ultimately human beings can't help you, can't save you, can't wash away your sin, can't even remove any of the sicknesses you have and can't add one day to your life, one cubit to your stature. I would like all of you collectively to each add one hair to my head if you could. <laughs> but you can't. We just we can't do those simplest of things. Only God can do it. And so our dependency and all our hope and all our salvation and all of our future and all it's all in God. It just has to be all in God. Have you ever been at that state where you were just so tired and so destitute and so fed up with human beings that you just needed to get alone with God for a while? It's a good experience to have. Even Jesus had it. And would leave his disciples and go up on a high mountain and pray and just commune with God. Every once in a while, we got to go back to remembering that all our hope, all our future, all our confidence is in God and God alone. And that we are utterly, utterly dependent on him. And the demonstration of our depravity and our sinfulness is how badly we want to be independent. How badly we want to say, I will not have this man rule over me. I'm going to go my own way. I'm going to do my own thing. I'm going to make my own decisions. And, but the truth of the matter is, man, let some bad stuff happen to you. And you go running back to God. 
saying, God, you've got to help me through this. What have I got? Who have I got but you? And he knows that, by the way. Uh, You're all nodding at me as I'm saying this. I wish each of you could be standing here and watch the amount of nodding heads in the room right now because you're all nodding at me, and collectively, we all, as a group, we're not that bright, but we figured it out. That means God's figured it out. That means that God knows that the best way to get you back on your knees where you belong is to throw some trouble at you because as soon as things go good, What's the example we've seen all the way through the Old Testament? As soon as things got good for Israel, immediately they went away from God. As soon as they were fat and happy, forget about God. Give it a couple generations, they knew nothing about God. So God would have to send some plagues and some armies and some enemies and some wild enemies, and then they'd come crying to God. Then God would send them a judge or send them a leader, and then they'd be freed again. And then, oh, God is great. God is great. And then they'd get fat and happy, and they're like, God who? God knows that that's the human condition, and it's demonstrated over and over and over again in the Bible. God knows that if he leaves you to yourself and makes you fat and happy, you're just going to wander off. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. And God knows the way to bring you back to throw some trouble on you. And then you're going to come to the same conclusion Job just did, which is, well, then my advocate has to be in heaven. My advocate has to be God. What else have I got? Right? Right. Amen? Amen. Okay, good. Questions? Okay. Say goodbye to the Internet congregation. Goodbye. Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace message. We welcome your feedback and encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.